are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. I wanted to begin our lesson tonight. A few years ago in Business Insider, they listed the 10 most dangerous roads in America. And I don't know if you've ever driven on a road that's dangerous before, but they listed 10. I'm only going to share with you a few, but driving on roads can be a a scary thing. And uh, depending on your familiarity with the road, uh, it can be even more terrifying. The number one most dangerous road in America is the Dalton Highway in Alaska, It's a stretch of 400 miles through remote forest tundras and over the Yukon River. And what makes it dangerous and extra scary is it has a 240-mile stretch. Think about that, 240 miles without any gas stations, restaurants, hotels, or any basic services. And uh, it also has some very steep grades and, and is prone to avalanches. There's another highway that's considered pretty dangerous out west, I-15, and it's a 181-mile stretch of highway between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and it's ranked as the most deadly stretch of road as of 2010. The study revealed that in 15 years alone, over 1,000 people had been killed on this stretch of highway. There's another highway in Colorado uh, called the Million Dollar Highway. It stretches uh, from, uh, it's called U.S. Route uh, 550, and it it stretches over uh, a large period of, or a large stretch of land, and it has three 10,000-foot mountain passes, and winds uh, move across this area. There's hairpin turns, but... What's crazy is much of the highway is without guardrails, and so it is considered a a very dangerous place. Highway 2 in Montana. Montana is, uh, I guess, a dangerous place to drive. I've never been there. It's on my bucket list to go to someday. But uh, there's uh, a stretch of highway that if something happens on that highway, it would take an average of 80 minutes for an ambulance to show up, and it's considered a a pretty dangerous place. It has a speed limit in areas of 70 miles per hour through uh, mountainous terrain, and uh, it's it's a very dangerous road. Another road that I I didn't realize how dangerous it was is I-45 in Houston, Texas. Now, this is a more uh, uh, urban setting, but it ranks very high in fatal accidents, and uh, this one particular stretch of 100 miles uh, averages 56 deaths uh, in it, and uh, it's, it's a pretty treacherous place. There's other roads that made the list, the I-10 in Arizona, Interstate 4 in Florida, Highway 1 in Florida, 285 in Atlanta, Highway 17 in South Carolina, all dangerous roads. 
And we could remark that they're dangerous for different reasons, just the amount of traffic or the curves, no guardrails, whatever it is. But I would suggest tonight that those are really not the most dangerous roads in America. There is a road more dangerous. It is a road, a spiritual road, a life walked and lived that is not marked by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the most dangerous road. The most dangerous road to walk or traverse is a life marked by sin. A life marked and that leads you to a life that is only lived for your flesh. It's a life that leads towards death. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so I suggest tonight that there is a road to salvation. There is a road to eternal life. The prophet Isaiah said, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall go there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall Walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee from them. There is a road to salvation, and we would be naive to act like there is no road to salvation, that any way that we live, we can live, anything we want to do, we can do. But the Bible gives us instruction otherwise, that there is a way, there is a road, there is a path to eternal life. I was reminded today of that old song we used to sing in church, and, and I remember singing it as a, a child, and it, the first verse says, more than security, more than success. If I must choose to own one thing, I'd choose Jesus over the rest. For if I should attain the goal to attain this world and all that it holds, and then if I should lose my soul, then I have lost it all. For above all else, I must be saved. For above all else, I must be saved. For whatever you have to do to me, don't let me be lost for eternity. For above all else, I must be saved. I don't know if you feel that way, but I, I feel that way today, that above all else, I must be saved. Beyond anything that I can acquire in this life, beyond any prosperity that I can receive in this life, I must be saved. And so tonight we continue our doctrinal series called The Road to Salvation. The idea is that doctrine matters. Theology matters. It, it matters because it sets us on a course. What we believe sets us on 
a course. And our hope in this series is that you will see clearly the direction that God wants for your life. That ultimately you would believe in what God says in the word of God for your salvation and you would obey his word. Reality is we need saved from our sin. Why do we need salvation, you might ask? Well, sin has created the need for salvation, and sin separates us from God. It it creates a a distance. It it creates a separation from God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin puts a, a hedge between us and God, and the only way that sin leads is to death. It leads us to that path. And for all of us who find ourselves in the category of a sinner, we realize that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none of us that have arrived into the world sinless. None of us have arrived into this world without the need for salvation. And so what is salvation and where does it come from? Last week we talked about this, but let me recap it for just a a brief moment. Salvation is God's willingness to forgive us of our sins and reunite us and reconcile us, to reach over the hedge, to reach over the gap or uh, uh, the expanse that separates us from God. And salvation is God's willingness and God's ability to reach for us and to allow us to ultimately be in right standing with him and right relationship with him. Romans chapter 3 tells us that, that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation or a mediator by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. God passed over them. He, he acted like they didn't exist. He, he forgave us through Jesus Christ to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what we realize is that salvation comes to us through Jesus Christ and we cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. And his death became the substitute or the atonement by which you and I have our sins pardoned, and therefore we can be partakers of his Holiness, a holiness that we couldn't be uh, uh, receive on our own, but we can receive his holiness by Jesus Christ. And so when we speak of salvation, I want to be saved. I want to be a partaker of his salvation. I want to be a partaker of his forgiveness. We can speak of it in three ways. We can speak of it in past tense, that we have been saved, we were saved, and we, meaning that we 
came to a point in our life where we said we no longer want to serve sin and we want to serve God. And so we have a moment of salvation. And the scripture talks about a past tense salvation. The scripture also talks about a present tense salvation, that we are saved in this moment. We can consider ourselves saved in that we have trusted in the work of Christ. We have obeyed his word, and so therefore we can say we are saved. His spirit lives within us. We can say that we are saved, but we also realize that there is a future tense to salvation, that we are going to be saved. We have yet not overcome the 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 weight and the oppression of sin completely in our life. We live in this corrupt body, this sinful nature, and we're anticipating a hope of a future salvation with God. So how do we partake both in past and present and future in salvation? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone So how are we saved? How do we uh, experience salvation? We are saved by grace. This is Christ's work on the cross. We are saved by grace through faith, through faith. And so faith is a threefold uh, element. It has a threefold element to it. First, Faith begins with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have a sense, you have this idea of Christ and what he did. But faith also has the element of belief in Jesus Christ. I believe that he existed. I believe that he was born. I believe that he died, was buried, and he rose again. I believe that his work was for me. And so we have that sense of belief. But the final uh, element of faith there is that faith is then ultimately expressed by obedience. It is my obedience to his commandments that partner me with his work of grace. Romans chapter 10 verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can they, they even reach for him and obey him if they have not believed? How shall they believe in him who they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we realize that there is a knowledge element to faith. There is a belief element to faith. And there is an obedience element to faith. And that creates a threefold cord of faith. Faith is powerful because at the end of the day, faith causes action. Faith is powerful because faith causes action. Faith is measured by obedience. And therefore, when we consider our lives and our faith in Jesus Christ, it must be more than just a mental assent or an articulation of knowledge and facts about Jesus Christ. Real faith moves us. Real faith moves us. It, it changes how we live. It changes how we act. It changes what we do. And so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we read this last week, but without faith, 
it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So we must have faith in order to be partakers of the grace of God. So tonight, I want to quickly outline this first act of faith. What is the first act of faith? It's really the act that puts us on the road to salvation. So there's this road that Christ's work on the cross has created. It's a highway of holiness. It's a, it's a path to salvation. It, it brings us to a place that we don't deserve. It, it covers our sins. But how do we even get on this road? Once we understand our distance from God, once we understand what he did for us, once we understand his love and his desire to reconcile us, there should be this drawing, this desire And it puts us into this intentional movement towards God and moves us away from sin. And it's called repentance. The word repent means to change our mind. It has the connotation of changing directions, to have a turn around. I'm going this way, and so This sense of repentance causes me to turn and to go this way towards Christ, towards the road of salvation. And so we understand that sin leads us places. It leads us away from God. Repentance, therefore, is the act of turning towards God. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 gives us a, a, a little bit of a word picture says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, turn, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This idea of repentance is an idea of turning. And repentance is a powerful act. David K. Bernard says that repentance is a voluntary act of man in response to the love and call of God. God is calling. God is reaching for us. And so by repenting, I'm acknowledging his call and I'm turning towards his grace that is beckoning me. And so repentance is a partnership with God's love and God's will. Repentance is a partnership with God's love and God's will. So quickly, let me offer four important elements of repentance. Four important elements of repentance. First is the recognition of sin. Before someone can repent from sin, they must first realize they are a sinner. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I did not come, he said, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why did Christ die on the cross? To call sinners to repentance. Remember, who are sinners? Everyone, all humanity, all have sinned. So Jesus said, I'm calling the entire world to repentance. 
I've said this many times, but I, I have to say it again. This idea of being called a sinner should not offend us. If you're offended by the term sinner, you don't understand what the word sinner is. If I say that I'm sick, if I tell, go to the doctor and I'm afraid to say that I'm sick, what, what point is it? When we come to Christ, we should acknowledge that we are sinners because the idea of being a sinner is a term of value. Uh, we've talked about the idea of lost. When I say something is lost, it means that it has value. If something is trash, I don't call it lost. Because it doesn't have value. I call something lost because it has value. And so Jesus kind of used this analogy. If I go to the doctor and because I'm sick, I, I, being called sick shouldn't offend me. It shouldn't be a, a point of contention with my physician. It sets me up then to be healed. Just as being called a sinner sets me up for salvation. And so sinner is a term of value. I, I, I hate to think, I would hate to think how many people have stopped short of the road of salvation simply because they did not want to admit that they were wrong. They did not want to identify themselves as a sinner. I don't want to admit that I've got wrong desires. I don't want to admit that my life distances me from God. And so it's important that if we are actually going to get on the road to salvation, we have to acknowledge, we have to recognize our sin. Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit. We're all spiritual paupers without God. And so we must recognize our poverty with God and beckon him and turn towards him. And so we recognize sin. Number two, we confess our sin. Once someone realizes that they are indeed a sinner, they must then confess their sin to God. God already knows everything, but he requires of us an honest confession, an acknowledgement on our part that we see the error of our ways and we desire to turn towards a holy God. Proverbs 28, 13, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. If you fail to confess, if you fail to acknowledge your sin, you will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes their sins will have mercy. John's baptism in the New Testament was a baptism of repentance. Here's what it, Mark 1 says about John's baptism. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So even John's baptism of repentance included a confession. True repentance is marked by confession. When we realize that we have sinned, we have the opportunity to be forgiven, but it will not come without confession. 1 John chapter 1 and 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful passage. The third element of repentance is contrition for sin. Married to our confession should be a genuine contrition. There's a sense of sorrow or regret for what we've done. Just announcing what we think God wants us to announce and confess some sin, I don't believe, is what God is looking for. Psalm chapter 51, verse 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And this is not just a human sorrow or a sorrow because of the consequences for what we've done, but a sorrow that produces change. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You ever seen someone sorry because they got caught and not sorry for what they did? That's what God's calling us too. He's calling us to, to not just be sorrowful because we got caught, but to be sorrowful for what we've done. And I would add here that tears do not equal true repentance. Tears do not equal true repentance. People can cry at an altar because they feel sorry for themselves, but their tears don't necessarily represent a change of heart just an emotional feeling of personal regret. True repentance is godly sorrow, is a godly sorrow. A sorrow that acknowledges what my sin has done to our God. What it has done to his plan and his will for my life. Godly sorrow ultimately causes us to reflect on our relationship with God, not just our, our own uh, consequences because of our sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 is an interesting passage. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So, so we walk this road, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, Lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance." though he sought it diligently with tears. He could not find repentance. He could find no change of mind, even though he had emotion, even though he had this sense of sorrow, even though he had tears. Esau cried, but he didn't change. True repentance is a sorrow that is concerned about your relationship with God, not a sorrow because your human desire 
was impacted by your decisions. And so, true repentance is a godly sorrow. There's something about a contrite heart. And then finally, the fourth element of repentance is the decision to forsake sin. The decision to forsake sin. We read Proverbs 28, 13 already, but let's consider it again. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. At some point, our recognition, our confession, our contrition must be turned into action. True repentance is an act as much as it is a prayer. Let me say that again. True repentance is an act as much as it is a prayer. John, in speaking to the multitudes about his baptism of repentance, said, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Like John, Paul preached, and he said that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. That they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting. It means to have the same weight. That if we say that we repent, that our life lives should have an equal weight to what we say we believe. So does our lives lived weigh the same as we say our life is surrendered to God. This does not mean that repentance requires a certain length of time to prove oneself to God. God knows instantly whether or not someone has made a genuine confession or commitment to forsake sin. God knows the heart. He knows the, the, the moment that we pray a prayer and we confess our sins. But I'll tell you, there is a power when your repentance is backed up by action. That is what really puts us on the road to salvation. As we will emphasize throughout this series, the road to salvation is not just meant to be a one-time experience or expression of sorrow. Where in the past we confess our sins and we say we were sorry But every day, we have the opportunity to not just confess our sins. Yes, we are to die daily. And if we sin, we're to ask forgiveness. But more than just confessing, this idea of repentance is an idea that means we live a repentant life every day we live. We live a balanced life. Not only have we asked for forgiveness, but we bear fruit that is in line with repentance. And so part of our forsaking sin in a a truly repentant person will seek to correct the impact of their sins upon others. And, And I challenge you with this thought tonight that you look for ways to make things right. If if you've done something wrong and you acknowledge it and you've confessed it and you're sorry for it. I encourage you to do something about it. If you have to repay, repay. 
If you have to seek forgiveness and ask somebody to forgive you, I encourage you to do it. If you have to correct misinformation that you spread, then do it. If you have to seek to repair damage that you've done, do it. Let your life bear fruits of repentance. I conclude tonight with this most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son, because it illustrates all the elements of repentance. In the story, if you're not familiar, you can read about it in Luke chapter 15. But then a son decides to forsake his father and demands his inheritance early. He is actually saying, Father, I hope you die. And he takes his inheritance and he leaves. But this errant son comes to the realization of his sin in Luke chapter 15, 17. The Bible says when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? And then he confesses his sin to himself. He's contrite and he makes the decision to forsake his sin. He says, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of these hired servants. And so this son arose. He didn't just think about it. He didn't just confess it openly. He didn't just talk about it, but he got up and he went to his father's house and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's an act of true repentance. This idea that I realized I sinned, I confess my sin, I'm contrite about it, I bow my heart to God in my sin, and I make a change in my life. I turn from my sin. Repentance is powerful. It's a powerful step in our life and puts us securely on the road to salvation. And I believe that you and I can walk this road with an attitude of repentance. Repentance keeps us on the road. If we've experienced the power of obedience and baptism in the Spirit, it's repentance that keeps us on the highway to holiness. It's that humility. Because I must be saved. I must be saved. I want you for your app time tonight, maybe text somebody, or if you're sitting with somebody, recall a time when you repented. Recall a time when you repented. What was that experience like? I wish you were here tonight because I, I knew, know by seeing your faces, I, I can just visualize your moment of repentance where you really acknowledged your sins where you walked into a church building and you knelt at an altar and there was this moment of emotion where you repented, you turned from your sin. Some of you have a, an amazing story like that. Some of you, it was a slow turn. It was you realized, you know what, this life I keep living that keeps tripping me up, I, I, I keep deciding, you know what, it's not worth it until finally I've made an about face. I've turned all the way towards 
Christ. But recall a time when you repented. What was that experience like and what did you do? I'll give you a couple minutes. I hope you had the opportunity to share your experience with repentance. Such a powerful and meaningful thing in our life. And I'm so thankful that the word does say in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then he'll hear from heaven, forgive our sins and heal our lands. So I encourage you, to live a life turned towards Christ. And so when those on the day of Pentecost heard about Jesus Christ, they asked Peter, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, God, for the hope of salvation, this mercy that we don't deserve, this act of mercy that you provide for us, God, that allows us to to have forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the grace that you've given us, the ability to overcome our sin through your power of the cross. I pray, God, that if there's somebody tonight that needs to repent of their sins, maybe they've experienced salvation in the past, maybe they've experienced it in the present, God, but I pray you would allow us to experience the wonder of repentance tonight. God, I pray that you would bless us tonight, keep us, watch over us, and protect us. We thank you, God, for your kindness and your mercy as we walk this road with you. We cannot wait, Lord, until we see you soon in Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. May his make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I love you all. God bless you. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. 
Until next time, thanks for listening.